turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Well, we come to probably uh, one of the most remarkable poetic passages of Scripture, but I think you must get the flow. You must get the context. He's uh, been arguing about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and he'll do that right through 14. And in the midst of this, uh, because gifts were being abused, some were dominating the church service, disorder was erupting, different problems. And so he doesn't take up chapter 13 to give us a bit of poetry that we use at all of our weddings. That's okay. But it's in the context of saying uh, gifts without grace are a dangerous thing. It's dangerous to be the wisest thing God ever created and the most beautiful thing and use it against God. And great gifts can be used against God if love isn't the motivating, controlling factor. And so in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he's going to develop what love looks like. Now, uh, the moralists love this because uh, they think they can live this way, and they can't. So we need to say several things about the love of God before we look at God's dictionary, and we'll just look at several of these characteristics. One, this is the nature of our God. If you want to find someone who acts this way, first of all, tell yourself, my God acts this way. So this isn't just some far-flung description. This is what divine love looks like in relational dealings. Two, it was perfectly manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way he conducted his earthly ministry. Then I think we need to ask ourselves this. Uh, if you today want to commit the two worst sins you could commit today, what would they be? Rob a bank. Uh, compliment your mother-in-law, <laughs> whatever. Uh, uh, but the two worst sins you can do today is to do something that shows you don't love God first and supremely above everything else. That's the first greatest commandment, and the greatest sin is when we don't love God like he's due. And two is when you put yourself ahead of your neighbor and uh, you walk beside them, and you won't get involved in loving a neighbor because loving people gets quite messy at times. You might actually have to help them, as in the story of the Good Samaritan. So that our greatest problem, our greatest problem across the board is our deficiency in this matter of loving. Now, we were all once enemies of God, and he has poured into our heart a capacity to love him that we never had before. Now, spirit filling is the thing that maintains this. Only as I'm under the control of the spirit, let me ask you this. Uh, would you rather be in, under the influence of someone that had great gifts or under someone that greatly loved? You could survive a lot longer under love than gifted people. Gifted people tend to be prima donnas, preoccupied with how good they are. And you can die in their presence 
and they'll never get to you because they're too busy signing autographs of how great they are. But love, love can make you feel comfortable with anyone if you're being loved by them. Our hardest job is to be loving. As we looked last week, God never had to take any lessons on how to share. He's a sharing God from eternity. He's a giving God from eternity. But now he's going to begin to go into these characteristics, and let's start the rigorous journey of measuring our own hearts and say, uh, is this the way my wife thinks of me? Uh, is this the way my uh, peers at job think of me? Maybe my kids. Does anybody think this way about me except me? I am patient with me. Uh, here we go. Someone said, you ought to be able to write your name in here, but I like the way it says, love is patient. That doesn't mean me. It should be, but I'm in process. Another 50 years, and I'll be quasi-patient. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends or fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. And what he is saying here, describing the characteristics of love, describing it, and then he makes this uh, relevant application. What you people are all caught up with, tongues, prophesying, uh, the knowledge, that all spiritual gifts, whatever kind, which are a wonderful thing from God, which the church in its present journey desperately need. But he says, don't fall in love with the gifts because they're part of our, the temporary journey on this life. They're not permanent. None of them. None of them are permanent. He names some. Why would you fall in love with what's temporary and omit what is eternal? Why not pour yourself and use whatever gifts you have, use whatever money you have, use whatever talent you have in a loving way? It's the thing that will last. Everything else 
will pass away, but this will last. Now, let's take his dictionary of the words he used to describe love. Love is patient. Now, there's two kinds of words that are translated for patient. One is a little word, hupomene, to remain under pressure. And it really is circumstantial, uh, just remaining under a, a hard situation, let's say. Um, lack of finance, uh, maybe lack of health, whatever. And, and it's circumstances you wouldn't have chosen, but your assignment is to remain under until God develops the character in you he wants to develop. We all want character. We just don't like the process you've got to go through to get it. It's usually tribulation. It's usually pressure. God doesn't grow redwood trees like you grow mushrooms. It takes a little bit longer. It takes a little bit more pressure. But this word is not the word for patience in that way. It's the word to hold out a long time with people, to hold the temper out, a long, macro and then thumas, hold it out a long time. Being patient with people, and uh, that comes down to several characteristics. Uh, when you're patient, you, you won't be someone quick to get revenge. Revenge ought not to even be in our vocabulary, but Aristotle said of the Greeks, you must never, never be slighted without full revenge. It was against all Greek ethics to ever let an offense pass, not, not on your life. You get even, you get more than even. That was the Greek ethic. And then all of a sudden, we're being told as believers, be patient. Don't seek to get even with people. Put up a long time. Uh, it also meant not to give up on people. Don't write them off too quick. Uh, it's amazing to me that God had Noah preach 120 years uh, in dry weather that a storm was coming. Can you imagine the neighbors hearing the building going on every day? Tell me he wasn't a Jesus freak. 120 years in a desert. You know, you've got to be out of your head. And what was God doing? 120 years, he knocked at the door of the antediluvian world only to see the door slammed and everyone except eight souls perish and nobody could say, God didn't give me time. He said in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the delay in the coming of Christ, which now has been over 2,000 years, that even in Peter's day, there were heretics going around and making fun of the coming of the Lord, and their line went like this. Uh, your God is sure slow in showing up. You've been telling us since uh, 30 A.D., Christ is coming again. Christ is coming again. And by the time Peter writes, it's about 60 A.D., so 30 years have passed, let's say. And they said, where is he if he's going to show up? Ingersoll and Voltaire, one of their great ways to prove uh, atheism. Uh, God, if you're God, uh, curse me and kill me right now in front of my students. I'll prove to you there's no God. And God never struck him dead. 
Ecclesiastes says, because vengeance against an evil deed is not quickly carried out, wicked men are emboldened to continue to be wicked. If you can get away with it, keep doing all you can. And Peter said, they say, where is the promise of his coming? We've heard about it since the fathers, but it's a joke. But Peter says, no, they forgot that the long-suffering of God is he is patiently giving them time, patiently giving them time, so that no man meets God at the white throne judgment and is cast into eternity without Christ who wasn't given enough time. He is a patient God. How long did he wait for you to come? How long has he been mentoring you to get over that temper, to get over this problem, this fault, that one? How long? He's patient. It's shown all over the Bible. He said in Romans 2.4 that it's the kindness and the patience of God that led to our salvation. He patiently waited a long time before we ever came to know him. So, God says, you be patient. Don't give up on people as quick as you want to give up. I waited a long time for you. Be patient with one another. Then he said, uh, love is kind. And it's an interesting word. Uh, it was a word that was meant to do something useful for other people. It wasn't just give them a Helen Steiner Rice card and say, I'm so kind. No, do something useful. Mow my lawn. Uh, help me some way. It wasn't just sentimental kind of love. It was love that was gracious. And look at the way it's used in Luke. Luke uh, 6. I'm listening. I hear nothing. Do we have pew Bibles? Yeah. And all the electronic ones, we curse. Uh, listen to this. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And that's a wonderful verse, but it's not the one I want. I want 35. We're going to come back to that verse later, so don't, don't think I don't have a purpose. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expecting nothing in return. What a Christmas verse. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the, to the people who always pay back. No, no, to the ungrateful and the evil. And notice, this is the verse we seldom ever read. Listen to it. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You know how this ends in Matthew's gospel? In Matthew's gospel, it ends, and be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we all try to figure out what perfect means. I, I'm, I'm not quite there, but I'm working on it. No, honey, you're a long ways off. Just no one's told you lately. He qualifies what, the merci what being perfect is. It's being merciful in the way you treat people who aren't grateful. That's the maturity he's calling for. Have you gotten to the place you can give to somebody that you won't ever get a thank you card? 
Could you just give it in Jesus' name because you want to show them kindness and you're not expecting an invite back over? That's what this kindness is. Show patience. Love will be kind. It will do something useful for others regardless of how the gift is treated and how the giver is treated. Love is kind. Then it says that love does not envy. And uh, it's really the word jealous, uh, zealous, but, but it's used, zealous or jealousy is used in good ways. God's jealous in Exodus 34. Paul said he was jealous over the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11. So it's used positively. Uh, I think all genuine love has a measure of jealous, protective kind of love. Uh, th- that's good. But this word is used negatively, and when it's used negatively, it usually gets translated envy. Uh, Jealousy can be, I want the best for you. Envy is, uh, I'm envious because of what you have, and I'd like to have what you have. I don't think you deserve to have it, and by the way, I should have it. You know, uh, in America, it's tough. You, uh, you, you come to a sense that you nearly feel content with what you've got, and then you meet somebody with less spirituality that has more than you. And you go into a tailspin. God, they've got three cars. We've only got two. They have eight bedrooms. We've only got six. And, and I don't mind it if it's an unbeliever that's very gifted, But if it's another believer that I know more Bible than, I can understand it. You should reward me for my great knowledge. You can lose contentment in one visit. You can have godliness is great gain if it has contentment. But you're going to lose it so quick. And here's this green-eyed monster of jealousy. Um, There's an ancient fable that used to be told that demons were trying all, all the while to get a bishop in Africa uh, to sin, to trip him up. Never could. And they, the demons reported to Satan, we can't get to him. What can we do? He said, tell him that his best friend has been promoted as the bishop of Alexandria. And that sure enough did it. Put him in a rage. How can that be? I'm far better I'm much more qualified. Jealousy works sometimes when nothing else will. You know what? It's why in life uh, you have very few people that you could tell your success to. I think it's where the wealthy can be very lonely because if people find out they have money, they immediately want to borrow. Because people with money know that. That's why they don't run with too many folks that are broke. You've got to run with folks that won't eat you up for a loan. Okay? That makes sense. I've tried that, but I have children. And, uh, uh, you know, and so you run with your kind, the same economic strategy, just natural. And another reason for it is I don't have to live with the jealousy and the envy if we're all at the same economic level. I find I could share with people my sorrows and my struggles I have very few I could ever share my successes with because of jealousy. 
because of envy. I got this small, small circle. I would always tell my sister, because she'd been praying since I was conceived that God would bless me. Never bother her. You would tell very few. Who could you share that if you got a bonus or you got something great, think of how few people would really just really rejoice with you over your benefit without asking for a loan. See, and so he says here, this love is never scheming of how to get what the other has, nor does it ever resent what they have. It's a marvelous virtue, and we all struggle with it from being children coming right up. And it does not boast. Uh, and that is, uh, many people are a legend in their own mind. You know, uh, no one's ever been greater than them. And uh, they pay their wife to keep telling them that. And uh, uh, the idea here is, uh, being boastful about yourself and always advertising. I read a while back about a woman who went to her priest because she was struggling with vanity problems. And as she was at confession, she started to tell the priest, I have all kinds of uh, vanity problems. And he said, what seems to be the problem? And she said, I, I, I'm so beautiful, I can't keep from being puffed up about it. Uh, he drew back the curtain, and he saw her. He said, don't worry, my dear. That is not a sin. It's just a mistake. <laughs> you know, uh, and some of you, it's like the woman, you know, that went to the photographer and said, please do me justice. And he said, you need mercy. Uh, but but so when you've got this inflated image of yourself, you're bragging all the time. I'm just so beautiful. No, 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 you're just mistaken. And uh, how many people are, are in love? Narcissism is the man that fell in love with the image of himself in the lake. And so I've seen nothing more beautiful, nothing greater. And so it's, love is not self-centered. Love, uh, William Temple one time said, uh, humility is not making yourself less than others or making yourself greater than others, it's the wonderful relief that you don't even think about yourself anymore. That's true humility. I don't even have time. Reading a little biography on C.S. Lewis, uh, they, he looked like he was a homeless person all the time, as many English of that era, era did. Coats were always thin, hair was kind of up in an upheaval, and here's this brilliant mind hanging out with Tolkien, hanging out at Oxford, but he, he could care less about his own person that much. Uh, he loved great ideas. He loved uh, knowledge. He, he loved to be with uh, people of learning, but he wasn't all into himself. He didn't spend a lot of time in front of a mirror, and the older you get, the less you'll want to spend. Uh, Take God seriously, but not yourself. Uh, you're, just, you're just animated dirt. He made you out of the dust of the ground, and to the dust you will return. The miracle is that the dirt can walk and talk. It's been animated by the breath of life from God. But let's not take ourselves too seriously. Let's take our God seriously. Um, 
And then the external expression, you know, is, is, does not boast, and it's, it's not arrogant. Um, not, and the word there meant to be puffed up, like bellows, that you just inflated image of yourself. Um, because everything you've got, God gave you, even your brains, believe it or not. And uh, how did you luck out getting such an education? Uh, why was it your folks could afford to raise you? And then we go over here and we see a kid in the ghetto that uh, being born to a crack mother, will he ever get an education? Will he have the same brain power given to him that your mother and dad passed on to you? Probably not likely because drug addicts don't get much nutrition when they're strung out. And that baby didn't choose to be born to a drug addict mom, but that's what he was dealt so we ought to make them feel bad all their life that they're inferior. No, 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 no. And all of a sudden, we get proud, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that wasn't given to you from God, and if God gave it to you, why do you act arrogant against those who have not been given the same endowment? At least be thankful. At least share it. At least carry yourself in gratitude towards God. Well, uh, I want to look at four M's in verse 5 to help you remember it. Four M's, verse 5. Notice, love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, for the sake of memorizing this, um, I want to just put this as four M's. I'm going to call rude, love has good manners. Two, it does not insist on its own way. I'll call that good motives. It is not irritable. Let's call that good mood. And then it's not resentful. Let's make that good memories. So four M's. I heard Haddon Robinson once link it that way, and I think it's very handy. It's not rude. Uh, it has good manners. The word, it was really used of sexual organs, sexual modesty. It was a word for um, nudity shame. It was used that way. And that's probably its primary meaning. Uh, it came to be used uh, of behavior that makes one blush. And uh, what he's saying is that uh, love never acts in an unbecoming way as to make you blush, as to embarrass you. And uh, a good euphemism for us, it, it has good manners. It puts people at ease. They're never going to be embarrassed by you. They're never going to be shamed by you. They're not going to be ashamed of your behavior. Haddon Robinson tells the story of his father, who was a blue-collar worker that grew up in Philadelphia, where Haddon grew up. Haddon was the homiletics teacher in Dallas, a brilliant homiletician. Um, and he said uh, he was given a special award at school, and so they were calling it, kind of an awards banquet, and uh, 
Of course, he's invited to go there, and the other students had, had done an outstanding job. But the, the, the thing that really made Haddon at dis-ease was his father was invited. And Haddon was fretting because his dad was blue-collar, had never heard of Emily Post. Did, what, he didn't know uh, how to pick up the fork or the knife. He just knew that whoever's there first gets the mostest, and you better enjoy it. That was his etiquette. And so he was diseased that I'm going to go to this occasion, going to be my teacher, others are going to be there. I want to look good. And I'm taking my dad that is just a factory worker, uncouth, according to Haddon, not polished at all. And he said he went there, and you know, etiquette comes from the word, the French word, to read a card before you go see the queen. It tells you when to curtsy, tells you how to act. So etiquette is to read your cue card, to know exactly how you ought to act. Well, his dad goes there, and uh, he's not paying any attention to fork knives and what goes first with that, but he engages everybody at the table in conversation. He introduces himself to the teacher and, and you know, he's almost patting people on the back and, and acts like he knows everybody and had, and this is just melting. And so the next week when he went back to school, his uh, teacher came up to him and said, Haddon, you have one of the most charming dads I've ever met. Because love knows how to do something besides hold the fork right. When you know how to love people, when you know how to love people, when you know how to put them at ease, and when people are above all the rules, they can sense that. And so that love always has good manners. It, it, uh, it knows how, what kind of language to use. It knows how to make a woman. You know, a woman knows if you're flirting with her or if you're undressing her in your mind. They could read it in you. And children know if you love them. Love puts people at ease. If they're not at ease around you, they're not seeing the love of God through you. Jesus always had children around him. You know, well, see, he was man of sorrow. Jesus was not ugly. Children run from ugly people. They run from people that... Uh, they have some disfigurement. They're, it scares them. Even uh, we saw our little great-grandson, uh, Sean, put on a uh, Santa Claus outfit, came in. I'll tell you, little A.J. was scared to death. Get this old man out of here. I, I don't need this uh, red ball of all this. Uh, you know, no, no, get out of here. Jesus, they were attracted to. I always think it's a measurement of someone's love for God do children feel welcome around you? Not to stay all night, but just for, you know, five minutes before they bite your kneecap, you know. Um, pray for me. Um, it says that love uh, is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Wow. How many marriages could be saved based on this? Uh, I, um, I got a friend that's been dating a woman for a while. I talked to him a while back. I said, hey, how's courtship going? When are you going to get married? Because I thought marriage was in the works. He said, 
no, 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 it's just not working. I said, it's not working, what's going on? He said, man, I'm too set in my ways. I said, are you? He said, did you know what? She even thinks that the remote control is to be in her hand. I said, what? I, I mean, I tried to act not shocked, you know. This is a mature man. He said, first marriage, he said, I always had the controls. Oh. So this is a major component. Who gets the controls? Man, you better not date her anymore. Get one that you can have the controls. Isn't that major? Well, at least he's smart enough. He bailed out in time. Uh, good motives. Not selfish. Does not put itself ahead of its neighbor. And that's exactly what Philippians 2 is about. Hey, look on the interest of others. See how you can benefit others. There's a remarkable story told about uh, Moody. Uh, they had a pastor's conference. Dwight L. Moody uh, had them come to Chicago and uh, pastors from all over Europe. And he noticed as he's walking down where they were keeping them at Moody Bible Institute, he noticed all their shoes were put out next to the door. Well, that was the European custom. Uh, they would put their shoes out at night, and the houseboy would shine all their shoes for the next day. And he knew that custom. And so he went and got some of the students. He said, we need to shine their shoes. Would you help me? None of them had a heavy burden to do it. None volunteered. Moody spent the rest of the evening, the president of the college, polishing all the shoes, and the story would have never gotten out until one of the workmen later, early in the morning, came upon him and asked him, what is he doing? He said, I'm finishing off these shoes. You see, uh, it's amazing what you can do if you're not selfish if it doesn't have to be for you. Uh, the lovers are the uh, ones who put others. Uh, Gandhi once said there's two kinds of people, those who do the work and those who take the credit. And you want to be the kind that does the work. Love is not selfish. You know why some of you don't ever get involved in Christian service? It's not for you. Your goal in life is to stay comfortable whether you show up bankrupt at the judgment seat of Christ with nothing to show for your life but comfort. There's no reward for comfort. Who said you're supposed to finish your life fat, dumb, and uh, happy and uh, uh, relaxed? That, that's the way I want to go out. Well, that's the way some of you live most of your life. And you have nothing in your hands, nothing to lay at his feet. The things that will meet you there are the things you did without you being the sinner. Self, without self. And the gifts here. Some said, I'm going to talk in tongues when I'm at church. I can't be quiet. I'm just too gifted to hold it down. Others have this gift. I've got too much knowledge to be quiet. We don't need to prefer the prophet that ought to speak. I'm just too important. I'm too important. He said, love never seeks to be first. If God doesn't know how to promote you, why don't you quit wasting your life trying to do it? I think of David. He didn't look to be the next king of Israel. He was taking care of a bunch of dirty sheep. 
He was hanging out at the back. He was so insignificant, your own father won't call you to the roll call of all your sons. Tell me that's not to be forgotten. And he wrote in one of his psalms, even though my father and my mother forget me as they did, you never read of David's mother. You never hear one time anything she did for David. And you know that Jesse wasn't very impressed not to even invite him to the lineup for the prophet Samuel. But God knew where he was, and promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. It comes from the Lord. And if nobody knows where you are, but God does, he knows how to get you where he wants. He must be your promoter. He must be the promoter of any of us. Because in a day, in a day, you can lose it all. My dad used to always tell me, if men put you in the ministry, they can put you out. But if God puts you in, only he can put you out. So don't be afraid of men. Fear God. Fear God. Well, he goes on to say, uh, love is not just uh, not selfish. It has uh, good manners, has good motives. It is not irritable. Uh, and I would say it has good moods. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, William Temple that said, irritability happens to be the vice of the virtuous. You know, you don't go out and, and get drunk and you're not cheating. So what other sins in-house are acceptable but to be irritable? And it's very common uh, to be irritable. Uh, what mood, uh, just on edge. There's some days you know the only way I'll live the Christian life is to stay in bed all day. I mean, you're irritable just when you woke up that the sleep wasn't long enough. Uh, there's just some time, and the first duty of your soul ought to be every day is to make yourself happy. That ought to be the first job in the morning. That's why I prefer praying and reading the Bible and seeing God's face and not the face of people the first thing in the morning. Get with God. If he can't make you happy, no one can. You get with him. And it takes care of that irritability. Um, it's it, it meant to be uh, provoked, irritable. Um, one man said, I have a right one week a month to be irritable, and so does my wife. Uh, George Mueller used to say, Lord, keep me from becoming a cranky old man. Some never lose their temper. They always know where it is, and they display it whenever they want. They never lose it. Um, just irritable, uh, touchy. You remember how Harry Ironside used to read Philippians 4, the two women? Sentaiki and Euodia. He named them soon touchy and odious. Two women, very touchy. As a pastor, I've pastored touchy people, very sensitive. Any one word. I, had a, I just got a hot email recently that accused me of a whole litany of stuff, and uh, it was off 100 miles. I really love it when they're wrong. Because there's so many things I blow that they could have got me for. But whew, I was safe on that one, you know. But just irritable, just touchy, wasn't listening to a word really being said. But the gospel, the gospel 
uh, ought to give us a change when the Spirit of God is working in us and we're living out this kind of love. Uh, we quit being irritable with who we ought to be helping. Then I, I would just stop with this one. It says, uh, it's not resentful, and uh, that's the ESV. Uh, other translations, it keeps no record of wrongs suffered. It's the word for a ledger. The literal word is it, it keeps no record of wrong. That's the idea. It keeps no record of wrong. Love doesn't. What does that mean? It does not have a ledger account in the heart of all that they have against their enemies, uh, can be their mate, their, their parents. I mean, the litany goes on that my heart has become a ledger tablet in which I have kept a record of every negative thing that's ever happened to me, and I won't let it go. I won't forgive. I just won't let it go. Jesus said something. If you want to know who a good man is and a bad man is, remember this. And he used the illustration that the human heart is like a treasure chest. And he said, a good man treasures good things. He puts good things in his heart. But an evil man treasures negative things. I think of a gal growing up with a hope chest. If finally when she came to marriage, you opened it, and all she had in there were a bunch of dead rats, you'd think she needed a mental checkup. Who wants to store away a bunch of dead rats? I went to a counselor one time, going through trials in this church, and I was sent to a counselor by the elders. And by the time I got to this Christian counselor, and they started drawing me out. As they listened to me, they finally said, you've been collecting grievances for a long time, haven't you? And I had. Then they said a profound statement. says, you know what? It seems like it's time for you to empty the garbage of your heart. And you need to empty it out on this table and get rid of it because your heart can't hold much more, and you're either going to forgive it or you're going to end your ministry. It's up to you. Take out the garbage so you can store good stuff or let it poison you with bitterness. Love has no time to keep a record of the faults of others. It has no time not to forgive, let it go, let it go. One of the hardest things to deal with is bitter people. I had a woman that used to always stand at the back door with a snarl on her face. When I first started at Holy Ghost Hall, she had this snarl there, and there was just, it was like uh, Mount Vesuvius, and I didn't know her that long. And uh, she would sometimes wait in on me and tell me off about a sermon or what. And she just, and uh, my brother David worked with her husband at the fire department. I said, what's this woman's problem? What's her problem? She's on edge all the time. He said, I'll tell you what it is. Her son went on a hiking trip to Yosemite. 
got lost. They didn't find his body for about five years. Finally, when the snow melted, they finally found his remains in some canyon, and she can't forgive God about it. Only child. And so she was, she could just tear your head off. I thought it was me. It was God. I met a woman one time at the Rio Theater when we were there, right in the middle of the aisle after service. She said, I can't let it go. I can't let it go. I, I can't let it go. And I said, what can't you let go? My father's abuse of me. Well, well, go to him. You've got to work it out. He's been dead 20 years. And I said, and you're dying. It's killing you. You can't function in the now because of what was happened to you in the past. And the Bible says love finds a way to erase the ledger sheet, just like God forgave you. And here's the thing. We say God forgave you. God is forgiving you every day. More than seven times 70. Some of you ought to look guilty right now. You're using it up big. When it said seven times 70, you're cashing in on it. When has he ever stopped forgiving us? When did he not burn the ledger? When has he ever brought up to you your sins, your failings, your past? Every time you come, he points you to the cross. He points you to Christ. He doesn't remind you what a jerk you've been. All of us. This is the gospel. Now, the love of God in our heart makes us pass on the gospel. You know the good news you can give to somebody? You may have to call somebody up and say, I just want you to know, on a human level, I ought to hate you, but because I've come to know Christ, I forgive you. And in forgiving them, you'll take off that blocked heart, the hardening of the arteries, and you'll begin to sense the Spirit of God flowing through you out to a dark world that's full of hate, revenge, and ledgers all over. You can lose your life for an ounce of Coke in the Bay Area. I know people in this church have lost loved ones on the streets just because they owed a guy a hundred bucks for a little bit of drugs. We're not going to erase it from the ledger. We're going to eliminate you. But we are a different kind of people. And God's love is in his nature, revealed in his son, and the present publication is to be through his people. I'll say this to you in closing. Uh, are you a loving person? And I'll give you a great quote by C.S. Lewis. It would be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit around trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Some people are cold by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it is no more a sin than having a bad digestion is sin. And it does not cut them off from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning love. The rule for us all is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as you act, though you did, you'll find yourself loving them. Just don't go on emotion. Just show love however you know. And God will do a miracle in your heart. He'll enable you to love whom you act like you love.
Don't worry about a big emotion. We don't need the emotion. Don't wait for the quiver. Just obey. Just do it. Father, help us to walk in the Spirit so that the moods of the flesh, the motives of the heart, the way we behave towards people, and the memories could be cleaned up so that we act as forgiving people to people who desperately need it, just as you erased the ledger of accounts that were written against us at the cross. Thank you that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Let us stand.